You began making movies at three years old? I, I would say three years old, yeah, was when I first started making films. So we had like a VHS camcorder, right? And I was so inspired by New Zealand's funniest home videos, which was obviously the version of the, you know, the Bob Saget, America's funniest home videos. So I would actually write and perform in these sketches that we would then submit to New Zealand's funniest home videos. So it might be like, it's my birthday and I would end up falling into the birthday cake or we'd be playing cricket and I'd get hit in the nuts with a tennis ball. And I was like directing my family. My dad was operating the camera and I'd be like, you know, make sure you get this angle and, and that kind of thing. And my sister and my mom would, would act in these sketches. So that was technically my first directing and acting. Yeah. <laughs> what has been the longest time you've ever taken a break from filmmaking? You know, once I got going with it, I, I just haven't really stopped. Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty relentless. I mean, I got into it in my mid-teens, pretty hardcore, and I've been going ever since. I've had to reevaluate where I'm at in my career along the way and change paths, but I've never really stopped. I read in your bio that you suffered from burnout at one point. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, what happened was I made these two documentaries. Uh, they were one hour documentaries and each one of them took four years. And I kind of did that on my own. I hadn't gone to film school. I had an amazing producer named Jonathan Green who supported me and we got funding and they, they did really well. But I just got to a point where I thought, man, I, I've gone as far as I can without some help. And that was when I decided to go to film school, which was in my mid twenties, because I just felt it was time to get that expert feedback. It was time to really study and hone my craft. I'd already started to find my voice, but I just needed to work on the technique a bit. So that was kind of how I got out of the, the funk that I was in, you know, cause I was kind of depressed coming off my second documentary. Yeah. I've heard that from other people too. Cause there is like this letdown, like it's finished, it's out there and then you don't know how it's going to be received or also the excitement of it is over as well. And just money. I mean, let's be honest, it all comes down to money and financing these films. Often uh, it is tough financially along the way. We all know you can make a lot of money in the film industry, but we also know it's not really at the front end, you know, when you're starting out, you're not making a lot of money. So that's tough. Um, yeah, you know, and for me, my second film was really challenging. I had some legal issues with it. And I also documented family members in my film. Uh, it was a film about New Zealanders obsession with rugby. Okay. So you might think, well, why is your family in it? Well, the reason is I documented my relationship with my father because I realized that that was the key to why I loved this rugby team from New Zealand, the All Blacks. That was it. It was my relationship with him. And I had some unresolved issues around that relationship. So I decided to document that in the film. Now, my dad and I have never been so close you know, we're awesome now, but it was tough at the time because even though I was telling my truth in the film, that wasn't his truth. He didn't recognize the character that was him that was in the documentary. So that was really tough because I went into it with the best intentions. You know, I'm going to make this truthful documentary. I'm going to tell my truth. Well, my truth isn't my subject's truth. And I kind of had a breakdown about God, what is a documentary? Can you make anything that's really truthful? You know, I realized how subjective it is, even with the best intentions. And I think that was why I was ready to smash that mold of documentary making on this film, Use Me, that I've just made. Because I just, I didn't feel that a pure documentary was a kind of a form I even believed in anymore, to be completely honest with you.
Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that uh, dilemma from other documentarians where sometimes a film is never released just because the quote-unquote subject doesn't want to be seen in a certain light. Mm. And in, even though it's kind of this raw light, um, they want to have it to be a certain way or look a certain way or whatever. 100%. And you know, it's that whole thing. It's like you shoot 100 hours of footage. It's 3D. It's in person. It's the real thing. It's life. And then you see a movie and it's 2D and 100 hours has turned into one hour and you're lying through omission. You're lying just by cutting things out or choosing to emphasize certain things. And you are trying to craft it into an emotionally satisfying story. Now, of course, you're not trying to mislead people, but there is a sculpting of that material. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying really obvious things here, but sometimes when the people you've portrayed in the film see that, it is a rude awakening. Sure, sure, yeah. I've, I've definitely heard of people that there's just tons of footage and they can't do anything with it. So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you try and communicate with your subjects, but it, it is still your interpretation as the director. And I don't know how truthful is documentary. It's still, it's still one person's point of view, even with the best intentions of being honest, it's still that director shaping reality into a story. What I find interesting is you had sort of the opposite journey in that most people go to film school, whether they become jaded or not and feel it was helpful or not, then they go on to work or do things in the industry, or maybe they don't, but you had the opposite. So did being in class with other people who were excited about movies really ignite, uh, reignite the passion? It really did. It really did when I went to film school. It, it kind of, uh, it sort of jolted me back to life and kind of got me out of the funk that I was in. Um, and it was interesting because I studied directing um, at, the, at the National Film School in Australia, which is called AFTERS, uh, Australian Film Television Radio School. And what was funny was um, it also reignited my love of acting because I had wanted to act when I was a kid. I went to a performing arts high school in Australia. I was acting two hours a day. That was part of the syllabus. And then kind of moved away from that to focus on directing. But then I go to film school and our teacher, Samantha Lang, was taking these acting classes. And so we were up acting for each other for a week. And at the end of it, one of the directors said to me, you know, I think maybe acting is your calling. And then these other directors that I studied with started casting me in their films. So that was like, that was an amazing revelation for me. Um, and it, that kind of got me back in love with acting. So yeah, being in that environment just was so inspiring on so many levels. I understand your parents know a little bit about photography or filmmaking? Yeah, no, I mean, my mom is an incredible photographer and uh, she really, um, she, you know, she took me to movies I should never have seen. Like she took me to see Deconstructing Harry when I was 11, way too young, <laughs> um, but it changed my life. I walked out of that thinking I want to be a filmmaker. Um, you know, previously my favorite movie was Independence Day with Will Smith, which is a great blockbuster, don't get me wrong. But once I started seeing these, you know, more adult movies, and then I get into Hitchcock, and then I get into Kubrick and, and Soderbergh, I was like, okay, there are so many different ways you can go with filmmaking. And I, I was really drawn to directors who explored, you know, the messy sides of humanity and how messy sexuality is and how messy interpersonal relationships are and how flawed we can be. That kind of ignited my love of storytelling even more. So uh, yeah, I do credit my mom with really encouraging me to become a filmmaker. And, and you know, also my dad, who's an incredible writer, 
Uh, and I'd like to think, you know, I, some, I, some of that I got from him too, you know, some of the writing skills I hopefully possess. Any tips they gave you or just like one little piece of advice that always stayed with you? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think um, I started writing uh, like books when I was like nine. You know, I just, I was kind of prolific. Now, I don't know how good they were, but I was just prolific, you know, and I'd show them to my parents and they were super encouraging. And I do remember one thing my dad told me, which was, look, you've just written this book, you know, you're nine years old. It's probably not going to get published. It's probably not going to go anywhere. Just being realistic. However, this is a great achievement and it's a stepping stone. You've put your foot on a, on a stone and now take the next step and then take the next step and then the next. Don't try and take a giant leap in one go. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that has really guided my whole career, I would have to say. Just the next step in front of me, that's all I'm really focused on. Um, and, and that's how you get where you're trying to go. You know, I, I mean, I want to make big studio movies in Hollywood one day, but you, you know, you don't get there in one step. So breaking it down into smaller steps, that's been really instrumental in shaping my career. You mentioned previously your love for acting and going to a performing arts uh, high school. You've been in not one, but two like viral ads or videos yeah. on YouTube that have received what millions right. of views. How does that happen? Well, you know, my acting career kind of got kickstarted by studying directing. That's the irony because um, the person who directed It's Time, which is uh, an advertisement supporting marriage equality, was one of the directors I went to film school with. His name is Stephen McCallum. So he saw me acting and then he kind of got the idea to put me in this short. And it was produced by another guy, Peter Slee, who I also went to film school with. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, that two minute piece, it's time. I mean, yeah, I think it's had like almost 17 million views on YouTube. Madonna shared it, Stephen Fry. Um, oh my God, I got my own float in the Mardi Gras in Sydney. Literally, you know, in front of a million people, I was there on a float waving. Like, how cool! It, it was so cool. It was so surreal. And it was a political ad. It was basically supporting same-sex marriage, which was not legal at the time in Australia. It is now, thankfully. Um, it's crazy to say, this will probably never happen again, but it was crazy being involved in something that actually did shape the way people voted. You know, it, it possibly, we would like to think, had some effect on policy which is, is a pretty crazy situation to be in. But what I will say is um, we had a positive message in that short. It was all about love. It was all about equality, tolerance. And um, it really showed me the power of short form content on the internet because I'd spent years making these documentaries. But once that little two minute piece came out, in 24 hours, my life was changed. People now wanted to hire me as an actor. People were interested in what I was doing. It was like a game changer overnight. So it just goes to show sometimes a short little piece of content, if it hits people in the heart, can open a lot of doors. So when uh, Stephen, the director, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, released it, um, he let, I'm sure all of you know, and then how soon after did like people start emailing you and I'm sure you were recognized yeah. On the street, isn't well, it? It was, so it was released by a company called GetUp, who are kind of this activist organization uh, in Australia. Um, you know what? It was pretty instant. It was one of those things that went viral. I guess it got to a million views in a day or less. Wow. So for me, it was instant. It was being recognized in the streets. It was people coming up to me, you know, and like telling me that they were, um, you know, like people said that they 
came out of the closet, you know, because of, they saw the ad. Like they hadn't told their family and wow. the ad gave them the inspiration to do that and made them feel like it was okay. And that was the, you know, that's the best praise I've ever got for anything I've been involved with. I'm sorry, I'm a little, you know, I feel emotional because it really connected with people. And that was like what we hoped when we made it. We hoped it would touch people's hearts and make people feel it was okay, you know, just to be who they are. So hearing that back was the best part. And it was, it's the nicest thing that's ever happened in my career, honestly, being a part of that. Yeah. And how soon did it take for it to get to the 17 million? <laughs> you know, it's just kept creeping up. And, you know, there's still places in the world where obviously it's not legal. So it's kind of been this evergreen piece of content. And um, yeah, it continues to be seen. We're so proud of it. And uh, yeah, I still see it popping up. I still get recognized in the, in the streets for it to this day. So it's, it's really been cool. Yeah, I hope people can, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to it and great. see yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great it's piece special. of work. And Stephen McCallum did a great job directing it. Michael Pont and Peter Slee, great producers. Get Up were amazing. Great team. Yeah, no, it's very heartwarming when you see it. And you don't totally know, well, I don't want to give it away. So right. I, 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 I recommend people check it out. So. Yeah. Then you had a second one go viral, did you? Was it a second ad or something? You know, I made a film about depression called All Blacks Don't Cry. And I, I played my childhood hero, John Kerwin. He was a famous World Cup winning All Black. And he almost lost his life because of his struggle with depression. So I made a short when I was a lot younger about that. And, um, you know, again, too, I, I guess I've been drawn to making entertainment that can change people's minds about issues or do reflect the world that we're in and do reflect social issues. That is something that excites me. Now, the most important thing is to entertain people. But if you can make them think about an issue or maybe change their mind, that's that's pretty cool, too. So then um, that one has over a million views? Or... Let me see. You know what? That one probably is only around 100,000. Oh, OK. That's yeah. so good, though. Yeah, that's no, so it's, it's been good. It's been good. And it's, it's helped people be very open about depression, which is which is great, you know, because asking for help is the first step with depression, you know, and that's something I've experienced myself. And it's something that, you know, trying to be a filmmaker, if you have some underlying anxiety, it'll bring it out in you because it is a hell of a challenge. Um, but the day that I asked for help was when I started to get better. And, um, you know, I haven't been depressed in a very long time because I put a lot of energy into my mental health, yoga, meditation. Um, I drink very little, you know. These are all things that help me as a filmmaker because I feel like I, you know, I gotta, I gotta be at my best because it's a tough industry. So looking after myself is how I've been able to have a career with some longevity. Yeah, because there's so many opportunities to become depressed with doing this. Whether it's you don't get a role or you something falls through, it's it's so easy for little things to happen, and then or you make a great film, it's done, it's out there in the world, and now what? And it's like, who cares, right? It feels like that's it, it can yeah. feel like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this game is all about perseverance. You know, you have to be an energizer bunny. You just have to keep going. Um, but for me, I can see my whole career ahead in my mind, you know, so I'm always moving towards that. It kind of pulls me forward. That's fine for me. But when you're working with other people, you have to inspire them, too. And I guess the thing I would say to filmmakers who are trying to get funding, or trying to get an audience, trying to get people to work with you, make it all about what they're gonna get out of it. Don't talk about what you're gonna get out of it, because it's obvious what you're gonna get out of it if you make a film that wins awards or makes money. 
educate people about what they're going to get out of it. That's something that's helped me get financing, get films made. And um, that's been critical. Like I can tell you a story about, you know, when I went to um, my high school, right? When I was 17 years old or 16 and I wanted to make my first documentary and I had to convince them to let me work on it three days a week. So I'd miss school for three days, right? I'd go to school two days a week. I'd work on the documentary. I was so arrogant. It's almost embarrassing now. But I said to them, this is a good thing for you because I'm going to get great results. I promise you. I'm going to get between 95 and 100 for my final mark in high school. Um, but I'm going to make this film that's going to be super successful. It's going to win awards. It's going to go to festivals. It might take a while, but it's all going to happen. Okay. And when it does, you are going to be seen as so avant-garde and that you really did support the independence and individuality of your students, which is what your school was meant to be all about. I said this to my principal, Margaret Markham. I'm so embarrassed now. I was so cocky. But it worked and she even found $5,000 and gave it to me. And she gave me that independent learning contract so I could go to school two days a week and work on my first documentary. And I look back on that. The reason she did it is because I told her what the school would get out of it in the long run. Not me, but the school. So that is my number one tip for pitching and financing. Tell your prospective financier what they're going to get out of it. That's great advice. And then did you have certain things you had to present to her by a certain time too? Absolutely. You know, and I had to get great marks academically. I mean, I put myself under a lot of pressure with my arrogance. Luckily it did all work out. Um, I kept them up to date. I told them how the production was going. And then eventually the film kind of caught fire, you know, and it went to the Berlin International Film Festival. It won an audience award. Um, and so they were delighted. They were really delighted. But it was funny. It's like everything I kind of said would happen did happen. So I, again, you know, I'm not, you know, positive thinking and all that stuff can be a bit of a cliche, but I do believe in manifestation. I do believe as the director of a project, you have to hold in your mind where it's going to go and then transmit that belief to people. And I've been lucky, you know, I have an amazing producer, Jonathan Green from Australia, who I've worked with since I was 16. So I've had that one person always backing me and believing in me. And, um, you know, I would say if you're just starting out as a filmmaker, you probably do need one person in your corner. So find a producer who believes in your talent and will support you and be tough on you and make you work hard. That relationship will be critical in making work over time. I heard a term this weekend, which is purpose driven. I'm sure it's already out there and it's just me who's late to the party on that one. But I get that sense about you that you're very purpose driven. Is that something that's the case or? That, that does resonate with me. Yeah, I think I'm always moving towards a goal. I have to like hold the dream in my mind of where I'm trying to get to. And it's like, you know, I, I had this dream of making a movie in America, which was really hard. I didn't have an American visa. I didn't have financing. Um, but you hold that dream in your mind and you move towards it. The, the one thing you can't control is how long things take. Right. You know, people talk about the secret. They talk about manifestation. Okay. And people kind of are like, well, come on, that's a little bit airy fairy. I really believe in that. I think that you move towards whatever is on your mind. And I think your, your unconscious mind does take over and kind of steer the car, but life gets in the way. Reality gets in the way. You don't know how long things are going to take. So I've always tried to take the pressure off myself. Like my dream was, I want to make a feature film by 30. That was the thing I was moving towards. And it's pretty much happened, you know, give or take a year. But I learned to let go of the, the timing. And I, I was just like, well, I want to make a good feature film at some point. 
rather than just being this achievement that looks good or something, you know, because that was like maybe a little bit thinking about status or ego, you know, when I was a, a teenager or early 20s when I had that goal. I've kind of learned a little bit to let go and say what will be will be, things will take as long as they take, but just keep moving towards where you want to go. That's how I live my life. Also too, independent film takes so much longer than people think. Totally. You know, I heard an interesting statistic. In Australia, seven years is the average for an independent film, meaning from the concept through to say the first festival screening. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. Both my documentaries took four years. Um, I guess I first had the idea for Use Me five years ago. So it's, it's pretty normal. It's pretty normal. And that was a thing even doing a Kickstarter uh, and getting people to invest in the film. You have to remember they're, they're not in the film industry. They don't know how long things take. They might think that it's going to take three months. So my advice to anyone doing a Kickstarter is always be communicative with the people who are investing in the film because they probably will have no idea how long it takes to make a movie. What, what kind of hashtag were you using to get, uh, I was just curious. What kind of hashtag <laughs> did we use? Wow. I can't even remember. The one we're using now is what is real because oh, okay. the film kind of blurs the line between um, fact and fiction. <laughs> yeah, what kind of hashtag did we use? I'm not sure, you know, it was very image driven. I mean, social sure. media is so image driven, like literally individual stills, not a lot of text. It's a very visual medium. So I realized that pretty quickly, yeah. I wanna hear more about that later because I know that's probably a, a, a big portion of why people, uh, you know, donated because it is so specific and mm -hmm. very image <laughs> driven. Mm. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely wanna hear about that. Um, I just wanna follow up with something though. It almost seems like your life has been like a real life almost famous. Oh my God, that's so funny you say that. That's really cool. Do you know that when I was 15, I started working for Film Inc. magazine as a film journalist. And I had a column called Almost Famous. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, wow, I did not know that. Because Cameron Crowe was a teenage journalist for Rolling Stone. And so I met Dov Cornitz, this incredible guy from Film Inc, a publication you should know about. Really, Australia's best, in my opinion, film publication. Now it's an online site. But uh, he kind of said to me, oh, you're a bit of a Cameron Crowe. And he gave me my own column. So there you go. I was interviewing people after school. That was my job. I, you know, I was 15. And I went and interviewed Anne Hathaway. How cool. In her hotel room, you know, and I'm like this pimply, testosterone-filled <laughs> kid. And my voice is breaking. Hi, Anne. Nice to meet you. How are you? I can't believe I got that job. Carmen Electra, Jason Biggs. And then directors, David Cronenberg, Jim Jarmusch. So that was my first film school, being a film journalist, right? Between kind of the age of 15 and 25. That was my first film school because I was watching all this stuff I wouldn't have normally watched because I had to review it. Sure. So foreign films or weird obscure documentaries, um, genres I wouldn't be interested in. And, and that was important. I think when you're starting out, you need to expand your taste and kind of watch stuff that you're not even that into just to know what it is and what, what constitutes a movie. You know, it's, a, it's a big spectrum and you've got to expand your mind at some point. So those were formative years writing for filming, yeah. Any juicy story you can tell leaving out names or identifying? Uh... No, I got a funny story and I'm sure she'd be happy for me to use her name. So again, this is when I was like 18, right? So I'm just full of testosterone. And I got to interview Carmen Electra. Wow, that's cool. So I go into her hotel suite and she's there looking at this magazine. And I was kind of like, you know, knock. Hi, Carmen, I'm Julian from filming. No response. 
okay, maybe she didn't hear me. So then I go a bit closer. I'm like, hi, hi, Carmen, I'm just here to do the interview. Still doesn't respond. I'm like, is she really rude or does she have headphones in? No, nothing. Then I get right up to her. I'm like, hi, I'm Julian. Would you like to do this interview? And then she shows me what she was looking at. She's looking at FHM magazine and it's like, Top 50, hot, top 50 hottest women this year. Oh. And she turns it around and it's a double page spread. And it's her in a thong, like a G-banger with a diamond on her coccyx. And she's like sp sponging up this car. And she was like, I only came third in the top 50 list. What do you think oh. of this picture? And I was genuinely speechless. I think it was a rhetorical question on her part. <laughs> I think my eyes were on stalks, my 18 year old eyes, but that was funny, you know, that was super funny. And an interesting insight into how when you get famous, you, your body and your personality becomes this product and this entity. And she was kind of studying it, looking at it, like how will my audience look at it? So it was interesting. And she's actually a very intelligent person, Carmen Electra. I yes. know she leads with sex or certainly did a lot early in her career, but we had a great interview and she was awesome. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So were you able to compose yourself? And then... I did. I took a deep breath. <laughs> All right. Great shot, Carmen. Let's do the interview. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Have you made any money from the short films? A little bit. Yeah. So I made a short film called Clearing the Air, uh, which had two terrific Australian actors, Marcus Graham, and then also uh, Reese Wakefield. Excellent actor. I went to high school with him and, you know... Now he was just in season three of True Detective, so his career in Hollywood was really taking off. But you know, I saw him when he was like 14, and I was like, okay, I can see the talent, I see where you're going. I like to think I discovered him. But um, <laughs> it was funny, you know, that film we actually sold to airlines as kind of interstitial in-flight entertainment. So yeah, we did get a bunch of checks from Qantas. Wow. The film was set at an airport. It's this father-son kind of reunion set at Sydney Airport. So. Yeah, I had to kind of put on the, the, the creative producerial hat and think, well, where could we sell this, you know? And this was really before people were sharing films online a lot, you know, because a lot of people just throw their short film on to YouTube or Vimeo. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are ways to make money from shorts. But realistically, for me, they were more calling cards to help me get to making a feature. How did you find distribution for that? My mum worked for Qantas. Okay. And I just was thinking out loud, and she said, why don't you try and sell it to Qantas? Interesting. There you go, we reached out, cold called. They took it, because they liked the film. Wow. Yeah, airlines are great. You know, my second documentary, Cup of Dreams, I pretty much sold it to every airline in the world. That was how most people saw it. So that, that's a genuine revenue stream. And just a great way for people to see your movie. I watch stuff always when I have, you know, the flight from Sydney to LA, I'll watch like four movies in a row, so. Yeah, if you can sell to an airline, it's a, it's a good way to reach people. And so they would play it in between like features and things exactly. like that? Exactly, yeah. Wow. They would play it on the TV in the screen, yeah. After like the, you know, the, the safety briefing and everything. Sure, and sure. then before the movie, yeah, yeah. How much does money impact the decision of what film you will make next? Mm. Or what kind of film? Whew, how honest should I be? Well, look, it all starts with the idea, right? So... You know, Use Me didn't have any big stars in it. It's very concept driven, right? Sex sells, sure. So it has that going for it. Uh, and the world of femdom 
and BDSM does have a built-in audience. So it had those things going for it, plus it's high concept. But let's be honest, if you don't have movie stars, I think your budget is capped at a certain point. So I would think that the way to move into making bigger budget movies is to attract stars. I'm very realistic about that. And I would love to work with movie stars and get the best performance possible out of them. And, and I think you have to make a bunch of stuff without stars just to show that you can direct, show that you can tell a story. That's what I was trying to do with Use Me. Uh, you know, in a sense, it's a calling card so that maybe people who do have a profile will look at that and go, okay, he seems to know what he's doing. I'll take a chance on him. Again, it's the step-by-step -step thing. This is kind of part of my strategy. Hard to get stars for your first movie, but if you make something that's high concept, that um, you know, gets your name out there, gets some runs on the board, that can open doors for the next film and the next film. So then you're, because I, I know there's people that like, for their first film, they're asking people to like, you know, donate money, which is friends and family, and that's great, but it's huge chunks of money, which it seems kind of foolish at that point for a first feature. So it sounds like you're very realistic. I think so. I mean, I think I knew, um, you know, I mean, you make shorts for thousands of dollars. Um, making a first feature without stars, I mean, you probably need to do it for half a million or less. I know some people have done it for $5,000 or $10,000 or $1,000. I've heard some crazy numbers. But if you're gonna have crew and some cast and a bit of scale, maybe look up to that half million dollar mark. And then you might potentially recoup that and then your investor might wanna go again on your next film. But, but for sure, you know, you do need to scale it back. Like I used to write scripts that were like $20 million movies. And then you get to a point, especially after film school, you kind of get smartened up to the business and you're like, well, there's no way that's gonna be my first movie. Maybe that'll be my third movie. But you, you do have to think a little bit smaller in scale for your first movie. Just actually get it made. Just get it made. That's my advice, yeah. Have you always been very practical? I, I think I weirdly have been. You know, because I think to make it in this business, you have to have this bizarre combination of being like a dreamer, daydreaming all day, um, just unashamedly being creative. And however you want to do that, if you want to smoke a joint and lay on your futon and just daydream, that is actually working. That is the definition of working as a writer director, letting your imagination run wild. So you need all of that. On the other hand, you do have to think about dollars and cents. You do have to think about how likely something is to recoup. You do have to think about, okay, what kind of marketable elements do I have in this film? How am I gonna put butts in seats? So for me, it's always going back and forth between the two, and somehow I am lucky I've been able to do that. And you know what, I really credit my sister. I actually, it just occurred to me. My sister's a surgeon, right? Um, so she went through medical school and done all the, I mean, it's been like a 15 year process. So practical so pragmatic and I think I modeled myself on her a little bit even though I'm in a crazy non-linear industry I kind of saw what she was doing and I thought well I need to be that practical I need to kind of approach it like she's approaching it it's a job I need to think about money I need to think about how long things will take I need to have the same kind of work ethic that she has so I, I think it's probably yeah my sister Rewa probably inspired me to be really pragmatic even as I'm chasing these crazy dreams What's the most money you've ever raised for one project? Uh, well, you know, I guess probably at this point, around the half a million mark for the film I've just made. You know, I can't give you the exact number. It's in that ballpark though. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what 
a great thing with crowdfunding is don't necessarily think about that money being the whole pot of money. What crowdfunding does is it gives you a proof of concept. It illustrates audience engagement. And if you can illustrate that, then you can go and ask people for more money with much more confidence. Like my producer, Jonathan Green, was really adamant about doing a Kickstarter because he said, hey, you wanna find out if there's an audience for this movie? Put it online, you know, do the Kickstarter, and then you're gonna find out. It'll either get traction or it won't. So it was really brutal. It was kind of like a, you know, baptism by fire. And it was kind of like, oh, this thing might not succeed. Luckily it did and it exceeded its mark. But what it really did, apart from giving us some funds that we needed, was it gave our film a shot in the arm. It got 200 fans who loved the movie and wanted to support it and wanted to tweet about it and share about it on Instagram. So it gave us traction. It put us on the map. And that actually gave my producer more confidence to invest because he could see something tangible. Okay, people are liking the movie. So, you know, I would say doing it just as a proof of concept is a great way to go. And maybe lower your amount a little bit. You know, don't, don't think that the Kickstarter money is the only thing you'll ever get. If you have a successful crowdfunding campaign, that confidence becomes contagious. So that would be my advice to anyone trying to crowdfund. Make sure you have a win. You know, make sure you get that target. So maybe lower, maybe lower the amount a little bit and blow through it. That would be my advice. Yeah. I think we were aiming for about 20,000 US. Uh, so we set it as about 25,000 Australian. And I think we got about 30,000 Australian. So yeah, it did, it did go over. And you need that little buffer just because people can still pull out. So you do need a little bit of a buffer. And I got to tell you, it was hard work. It was a full-time job for a month. And Sierra Lynch is a genius at social media. But even then, it's... It's, and frankly, she's a financial dominatrix. So people have a fit. One of my friends said, as if this crowdfunding isn't gonna work, you have a financial dominatrix. And I said, okay, I take your point. On the other hand, they're used to paying her for this kind of sexual role play thing. It's actually a different proposition to say, hey, come and invest in an indie film. So we had to really educate her fan base about, no, this is a completely different thing. It's a movie, it's a real thing. This is what you get for investing. And she had to put a lot of effort to convert them because it wasn't the usual, <laughs> it wasn't the usual transaction they were used to. It was actually something different. So it was all hands on deck for a month, a lot of sleepless nights and uh, thrilled that we got there in the end. I'll try to include the link to the Kickstarter campaign page because you did a great job in creating this intrigue and mystery, even if Dom, humiliation, all that isn't someone's forte. I thought you did a great job in terms of creating uh, a story out of the trailer. Thank you. And look, that was the critical thing that my producer, Jonathan Green, said. He's like, okay, we know that people who are already into this kind of thing or this strange sort of sexual subculture, we know that they're already invested. His challenge to me was try and get the most mainstream audience you can. Try and get people who have no interest in that world to bite on this. And we actually did that. And that's what gave him confidence. People who maybe not even have no interest in femdom and BDSM. They might even have an aversion to it, but they were pulled in because they thought, well, actually this is a, a thriller. This is gonna be an exciting movie. And there's some thought that's been put into it. There's a story here. Um, so, so that was really the challenge for us to, to reach a more mainstream audience. And now that's our challenge with the film being released. You know, we have to break out beyond the niche. The niche is only so big. And I think we have a film that can do that, fingers crossed. And so when you raised the 30,000 uh, on Kickstarter, it was under the name of Ruin Me and it was supposed to be a documentary? Well, it's funny you say that 
I actually never called it a documentary. I was setting up the blurring of the lines even back then, three years ago on the Kickstarter. Now it did say from documentary filmmaker Julian Shaw, which was true because I had only made documentaries till that point. But I was very careful to include in the trailer, if you go back and look, my character actually says the words, this is not a documentary. I made sure I put that in there so that no one could ever have any qualms about the fact that the film is fictionalized. So I think we tried to be transparent right from the beginning, but it was funny, even up until this point, I have friends saying, hey, how's the doco going? <laughs> and I'm like, you know it's not a documentary. You know I was writing a script for it. But people see what they want to see. So that's been very interesting, very interesting. People have expectations and you can be transparent, but people hear what they want to hear. So then you were able to get uh, producers on board before you did the Kickstarter, obviously. You know, I had uh, one producer, uh, Jonathan Green from Australia, uh, who was really supporting from the beginning, but he was a little bit, you know, careful. He, he's never given me a scent that he wasn't sure about, put it that way. He, he made me develop it in stages. So firstly, we made a short film, which will never be released. It wasn't very good, but it was a short film to prove that I could act, that Sierra could act, and that this kind of hybrid form was actually engaging. So we made this 20 minute short and he liked it. He said, okay, you made that. Now I feel a bit better about investing in a feature, but let's make sure that there's an audience for it. So do a Kickstarter. We did that, big success. Then he said, okay, now I'm comfortable to really invest some more funds in this. So he, he was very smart. It was a, a torturously slow process from my perspective, but that development was needed and each little milestone we cleared, again, step by step, gave us all more confidence. Is your goal to be a Hollywood director directing Hollywood movies? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, that's always been the goal. And to do it in my own style. I mean, I, I'm a New Zealander originally, right? So I look at Taika Waititi, who directed Thor Ragnarok. You can't get much more Hollywood than that. It's a Marvel Studio movie, hundreds of millions of dollars. But he found his voice. He found his voice making these short films and then these small independent features in New Zealand. And you can see that voice in Thor Ragnarok. Now it's also hugely commercial, it's got movie stars. It's a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, so it's about as marketable as it gets. But the essence of his voice is in that movie. So I look at someone like that and I go, hell yeah, that's a great thing to aim for. You know, so this has been a journey of me finding my voice and now I kind of feel I'm finally kind of grabbing it and kind of have it in my hands and own it. And I, I think for sure my goal is to make movies on the biggest scale possible with great cast who are recognizable and with amazing crew who are the top of their game. If that's not your goal, why do you want to be a filmmaker? You know? Well, just to play a devil's advocate, it seems like you are attracted to stuff that's a little more edgy and maybe taboo, which I think is great to, to want to venture to places where most people be squeamish. Mm. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm projecting that onto you and that's not really who you are. But if you do want to do that, you think you could do that in the Hollywood space? I think so. I think so, for sure. I understand my first film is pretty edgy, you know, and has some pretty taboo subject matter. But even within that, I think people are surprised that there is an emotional arc to it, you know, and there is a storyline that does play to a mainstream audience. So yeah, I'm drawn to extreme characters and crazy worlds, but hopefully through this film, I'm also demonstrating 
what I can do as a storyteller. And I think I could apply those skills to more mainstream fare. I'm very confident I could actually, yeah. Because I've known other filmmakers who have covered similar topics or different things and they say they have no interest in pandering to independent film audiences or main and they, they just want to make films that they want to make and cover interesting subjects. So I know it, it's, a, it's a dilemma because sometimes you feel like you have to do things that are more cookie cutter and mainstream to be able to please everybody. I understand that, yeah. Well, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Because you don't want no one to watch your film and you do have to keep the audience in mind. But you also have to be drawn to subject matter that appeals to you, particularly if you're going to spend years working on something. You have to be excited by it. But I guess what I'm excited by is taking the audience on an emotional journey. I mean, that's the only thing all my films kind of have in common. So that's the process. And in a funny way, the subject matter, the themes, that can change. But I mean, you're there to tell a story, you're there to engage people, you're there to take them on this emotional roller coaster ride. And, you know, as you're making shorts and then documentaries and now my first feature, you, you're going through a process of honing that skill set to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I think I'm really open to whatever the next story is. I don't have it totally in mind yet, but um, I'm just drawn to provocative subject matter. That doesn't have to mean it's controversial or niche or edgy or offensive. But something that first elicits that emotional response from me. And then I work out, okay, well, how do I translate that to an audience? And that's kind of the, that's the, that's the art. That's what this whole thing is. Super hard to do, but that's the challenge. What's your pre-production checklist? Whew. You know, I don't storyboard a lot. Uh, certainly having a shot list. I mean, certainly speaking to every head of department well in advance. And I got to say, if you're acting in it and you're the director, you got to do twice as much work because you kind of need to make sure that there are people who will be honest with you about whether you're getting what you need for the edit room. Because it doesn't matter if it's you, right? At the end of the day, you're going to be in an edit suite six months or two years down the line, and you're going to be watching your leading man. And if he hasn't given you enough material to work with, you're going to hate him, even if it's you. So what I had to do really was tell my, um, you know, my unit production manager, tell my, uh, my cinematographer, tell all the heads of the department, pretty much, this is what I need from my performance. And I'm gonna be so caught up answering a million questions, but just make sure I'm doing what I said I was gonna do and you know, writing it down on a piece of paper so we're very clear, I need to have these beats because I'm gonna be in the edit suite later and I'm gonna hate myself if I didn't do it. So that's just an extra complication if you're performing in it. Um, but you know, I think the best advice is that you do a lot of your directing beforehand. You go in there and you've, you've got it all kind of mapped out. It's going to change on the day and sometimes those are the best accidents. But the more you can do to prepare, the more free you are on the day to play. That's what I've found. Yeah. So you invited them to be tough on you, essentially. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, and you've got to be honest. You know, sometimes I do a pretty bad take, you know, or I'd be in the edit suite and I think, no, that's, you know, let's just be honest. It's not working. So if you can't have that kind of candor, you shouldn't, you shouldn't act in your own film because you're inviting criticism by doing that. Um, so yeah, honesty from the beginning, super important, really important. But I looked at a lot of you know, um, directors who had directed themselves, like Ben Affleck, who has done it brilliantly. He had a really good point, which was that when you're on set, you're not actually self-indulgent. You actually go into this sort of faux modesty which is let's get all the other people's coverage first and let's really get 
you know, say it's Sierra, uh, the, the female lead in the film. You know, let me really make sure I've got her performance. Let me spend all my time on that. And then, you know, time's getting short and you're like, oh, well, let's just quickly do my take. Let's just do one or two and just bang it out. And, and he just had this great point. He was like, no, don't be false modest. Don't be like, oh, I just need one take. Just quickly do it. Like, if you need five takes, do it. Because eventually you're gonna be in the edit suite looking at yourself and you're gonna be angry if you didn't have enough coverage and didn't give yourself enough options. So treat yourself like any actor. Make sure you get what you need. So you have to compartmentalize. It's a pretty crazy thing when you're acting in it too, but you have to be able to compartmentalize and just see, hey, this is an actor who happens to be me giving me the raw materials I need for the edit. So it's tough, it is tough. Because you also played Julian, another version right. of Julian, sort of. That's right. In the film. Yeah, and Sierra plays herself. So our performances are always kind of walking the line between who we really are and who these characters are. So it was a bit of a head trip. So being very open and communicative with everyone was was important. And what kind of notes would they give you when they wanted another take from you? Just blunt, like, hey, let's do that again. Or what, what would they say? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, my, my producer on set, AJ Gordon, would just be like, hey, man, I'm not sure if I was feeling that one. Were you in that? And I'd be like, eh, maybe not. Maybe I was at 90%. Let's try and get to 100. So just that kind of shorthand, not about being critical, but, um, you know, also just, just making sure you have coverage, just the practicality of it. You know, even when you're shooting in a documentary style and it's quite verite and quite kinetic and raw, you still have to make sure you've got all those elements you're going to need in the edit suite. So I think the more experienced you get, the more you're able to backtrack from the edit suite where you know you're eventually going to end up. So, you know, you can project into that space and think, okay, what raw materials do I need and kind of work back from there. Yeah. What is Use Me? Use Me is my first feature film. It is a thriller. And it's a film that blurs the line between fantasy and reality right from the very first frame. It started as a documentary about Sierra Lynch, who's a world famous online humiliatrix, which basically means she is well paid by men to verbally abuse them and take large sums of money from them and fantasy role play blackmailing them. Crazy stuff, but they, they love it. So uh, in the film, I play myself, a documentary maker, doing a film about Sierra Lynch, trying to find out who the real Sierra is. I develop some feelings for her. I uncover some aspects of her work that she was trying to hide from me. And things go deliciously awry. That's used me. So it had uh, several sort of evolutions to it. I know it had a different title, which we can get into later, but it started out as one thing or it always was that one thing? No, I mean, look, so, you know, I just thought this person, Sierra Lynch, is a great subject for a documentary. And I wrote to her and I said, I'd love to meet you and film some stuff and see if there could be a documentary project in this. And she luckily knew who I was because she'd seen It's Time, that marriage equality short we were talking about. So that gave me a bit of cut through because obviously she's got men sliding into her DMs all day, every day. <laughs> So luckily I got some traction there and she was like, come to Portland, let's meet. So we did that, filmed her for a few days and it went awesome. It went really well. She was everything I hoped for and more. I mean, she was incredible. But I also just had this nagging feeling like I don't really see a documentary in this. Because honestly, she was super well adjusted, super hardworking, happy person, down to earth. What's the story, you know? 
So I actually realized that there were some murky aspects of what she did that I really wanted to explore in a fictionalized story. And that idea came pretty, pretty early. And um, it kind of developed from there. And she, she was down for a film that kind of busted through that genre line of documentary and played in a more narrative space while still incorporating elements of reality. She was really down for that. She loved that concept. So it became a real uh, amazing collaboration over the last few years. Yeah. Did you actually write out a script with like a, a, a three-act structure? Totally. Totally wrote a 90-page screenplay. My producer, Jonathan, insisted. And I said to him, look, but there's going to be a lot of improv and this and that. And he was like, I get it. I get what you're making. But write a Hollywood formatted standard 90-page screenplay first, which was grueling. But it was a good exercise because that was kind of the platform upon which we could improvise or we could tweak the story or take it in a different direction. So, you know, I would say to anyone who thinks they want to make a fully improvised feature, I mean, do write as much as you can because eventually you have to write it. Like I remember the last scene in the film in my script, it just said like improv and then it had a few notes. So then you get to the day where you're shooting the last scene and you're like, oh, great. All I did was <laughs> defer writing it. Like now I have to write it under pressure and we're losing light and I need another coffee and we've got one hour to shoot this scene. Why didn't I just write it before? You know, so it is dangerous to rely on improv. I think you do need that solid foundation. Get that, stand on that, and then you're actually free to go wherever you want to go. That's really been my learning. The more prepared you are, the more flexible you are. It's kind of ironic, but that's, that's kind of my biggest lesson, yeah. Forgive me if this is too personal, but your ex-girlfriend is in the film? She is, okay. yeah, yeah, Sarah Armanius. Amazing actor, you know, I went out with her for 10 years. And uh, yeah, we, I had started making this film while we were breaking up. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, we had a conversation about it, about the film and about how Maybe there's gonna be a storyline, you know, involving this character's girlfriend and he's gone through a breakup. And maybe because she's an actor, she's a creative person, she was like, okay, well, maybe <laughs> we should incorporate this. If this whole thing is about art imitating life, then let's use that. So there are actually scenes from our real breakup that are in the movie. Oh, wow. You know, she gave full consent. She knew it would be in a fictionalized film. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty raw, it's pretty, it's pretty real. And I think the audience can feel that. You know, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch. But um, yeah, she was, she was down for it and I'm grateful. She's a terrific actor. If she wasn't an actor, I don't think she could have sure. done that and had the camera going on while we were going through this crazy, you know, breakup. But uh, yeah, uh, she's great. She's a great actor. And you had seen uh, Sierra on the Joe Rogan podcast or you found out about her work other ways? That was subsequently. You know, I discovered her online accidentally. I'll leave to your imagination how I discovered her. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just, just went down a rabbit hole and totally. Oops, here I am. <laughs> no, totally. It was on YouTube. <laughs> okay. It wasn't on Pornhub or anything. It was, I discovered her on YouTube. I don't know how I got there. I mean, I really don't. I shudder to think how I got there. <laughs> but what happened was then I went to her website and of course she's a very attractive woman and very sexy. Okay. But just because someone's sexy doesn't mean that you think you're gonna build a film around them. What it was, was her website and this blog that she wrote, she was just so intelligent. And, and there was this design to the whole Sierra Lynch character. And there was this 
extraordinary command of social media and this blurring of the line between fantasy and reality. And I was just intrigued. I was like, this person is quite brilliant. And then I learned about these fetishes I'd never heard of, like financial domination, which is kind of important in the film. Again, where the, it's a fetish where men get turned on by giving vast amounts of money to a woman and getting nothing back. Hmm. That's a turn on. Luckily, I don't have that particular fetish. <laughs> you just get married. I mean, <laughs> this is what people say. I've had a few people say, you know, I think my wife is a mental humiliatrix. Okay. But uh, you know, I, I just I really was fascinated by Sierra, and um, again, the interplay of the persona with reality, the blurred lines, it was all there right from the beginning, just from going on her website. And I made a film that, I guess, reflected that fascination that I had with her, yeah. And sorry again, if this is too personal, we can stop if it is, but you did develop real feelings for Sierra? I'm not sure that I would go that far, but you know, I think that, the pleasure of this movie is that people can watch it and interpret it however they like. And they can, hopefully they just get caught up and emotionally engaged in the story. That's the main thing. Because when they do that, what I keep hearing is, we don't really care what's real and what's not. We just like the story and we just cared about the characters. However, if you do like that more meta aspect, people are having a lot of fun picking what's real, What's fiction? What's fiction very closely inspired by reality? You know, what's thinly veiled reality? People, people have fun with that. So I'm more putting this out there. I don't necessarily want to comment on exactly where the line gets blurred, but people are enjoying figuring that out for themselves. So I don't want to ruin their fun. Well, you said previously that you just want to tell a great story. It doesn't matter really whether it's edgy or not, but why, why this story? Why does it intrigue you so? Well, you know, it wasn't the sex. I mean, it really wasn't. And that became apparent to me after three days of working on what I thought was a documentary because the whole thing runs out of steam. Yes, it's fascinating hearing about these fetishes. Yes, it's titillating and sexy. And then what? I mean, you watch that for 15 minutes and as an audience, you're like, okay, now what? Sure. And yeah. that was kind of where I got to. So why this story? You know, I liked it because it let me explore some deeper themes about addiction, about narcissism, and this world that we live in now, which I'm guilty of, which is selfie culture and turning yourself into a brand. And, you know, especially in our line of work where you have to have a social media presence, we all do that. It's, sure. it's performative and we use the raw materials of our life to make a story that's kind of fake and then put it out there for the world to see. So. I was just fascinated by where the world has been going and the narcissism in our culture and also saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a part of that, you know? So it allowed me to explore that. Um, and then even ideas of what the American dream is, right? I mean, Sierra, uh, she sold her excrement for $4,000. Oh, wow, okay. And in the film, her lawyer, her real lawyer, he says she's living the American dream. Yeah. So, <laughs> if that's the American dream, there I need to dig a bit deeper into what the American dream means. So I kind of did that in the film. So it allowed me to explore a lot of issues I was really interested in exploring, yeah. I think I heard you say in another interview, you know, we live in a fake world, which I fully agree with. But do you think now in, in this current age that audiences are craving authenticity or story? Ooh, good question. <sighs> Great question. Story or authenticity? I mean, ideally both. 
And I think people are craving anything real because everything is fake. I don't mean fake news. I don't mean that well-worn phrase that the president uses. I mean literally Instagram where everyone is face-tuning themselves and photoshopping themselves and everyone is presenting this curated highlight reel of their life, which I am guilty of too because I just want to put positivity out in the world. So of course I show me being in love or me working on a film or me doing a cool interview with Film Courage. So you are getting all the highlights and that can be kind of exhausting for people. So I, I think there is a craving for people to see the warts and all reality of life. And I think I got to do that a bit in this film. And I think as well, you know, it is a fictionalized story in this movie, so it is kind of artificial. And yet there's authenticity sprinkled through that. I'm really drawn to that as a form. Like, I'm gonna be completely honest and just out myself. I'm a professional wrestling fan. People are always gobsmacked. I've loved it since I was five. And for the record, I realized it was a scripted show when I was seven. Okay, and that was when I fell in love with it more because I was like, oh, okay, so it's not an athletic contest. It's a show. It's performance art. It's a circus. Okay, I love that. And, you know, I use that as an example because that's the most obviously ersatz, artificial kind of storytelling there is. And yet there's authenticity within that fake framework, right? There's, it's no coincidence that The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, is the biggest star in the world. How did that happen? He had this wrestling persona that he imbued with his true personality. He invested his authentic self in this silly wrestling character and it caught fire. And now he's the most profitable actor on earth for a reason. Because there's authenticity in that fake framework, if you get what I mean. Sure. And that's kind of like Use Me. Maybe it's a long bow to compare it to wrestling, but we're upfront about the artificiality in Use Me. We're upfront that this is a movie. This has a scripted narrative. But within that, there is truth. Within that, there is authenticity. And I have to tell you, this is a much more honest movie than it would have been if I made a pure documentary. Much more honest. I could go so much deeper into this world. I could go so much deeper into these themes of addiction, sexual addiction, technological addiction. Because I fictionalized it, it was the lie that let me tell the truth. And that's why I did it. Well, that's great, I like that. By the way, did you see Fighting With My Family? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's excellent. I would yeah. love to. And, and that was based off a documentary, I think. Yeah. And so, but, but within that, there is, there's the character of Paige, but then there's like this story that it was about her family and different things that she's gone through. And so, mm. yeah, it is, it, wrestling is interesting. It's very, you know, because everybody's made up and they're, whether they've been tanning or, you know, right. and their hair's teased and stuff. And there's these supposed uh, fights and everything, these, these long-standing animosities. Right. Uh, so you, it's easy to fall into that. But yes, we, we want to be, it's just the same thing. You, you, you see these women in the magazines or on whatever, you want to think that there's a fantasy, a story behind it. You don't want to know some of the real things that they've gone through. That's you know? right. That, that's why you're going there, is to escape reality. Absolutely. But it's interesting on the wrestling thing, like wrestling is such a meta thing because people just get turned off because they see, yes, the good guy versus bad guy storyline. But I can see beyond that artifice, and I'm actually watching the performers. It's just like when you go to a movie, right? And you're like, okay, it's Meryl Streep playing this character. Like, you're emotionally connected to the actor, not just the character. It's the same with wrestling. It's real people who you're emotionally connected to portraying these characters. And sometimes the story can be very thin. I mean, let's be honest. But you're drawn to that spark and that authenticity. And it's why we get obsessed with actors. It's why we get obsessed with athletes. We just, we want that authenticity. We want that emotional connection. So 
it's, look, it's all kind of meta. It's all kind of meta, isn't it? It's always different levels, right? It's like when you're watching a movie, you know it's a movie, right? Yeah. I don't know how wrestling is any different. Sure, yeah, we want, to, we want to escape ourselves right. and watch somebody else's dilemmas. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and put yourself in their shoes, yeah. At what point were you told by your producer that you needed a script? Did you already have footage with Sierra? Yep, I already had footage with her. I'd shot some documentary stuff and then just some raw stuff of us kind of filming each other and just exploring where the movie could go. So there was a bit of a general sense, but my producer was just like, you have to write a script. You have to give me a 90 page script. And it was a brutal process. I mean, I've written scripts before, but never for something that is inspired by reality. And that was really tough. Like reconciling this documentary footage and the reality of her world with a fictionalized storyline and trying to keep the fictionalized storyline authentic feeling and still connected to the reality. So it was a torturous process. I like to write in shitty motels. Oh, wow. I did a lot of road trips and would stay in, you know, kind of like Bates Motel level places. I don't know why, I can just think straight when I do that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of writing just happened walking on the beach, you know, very early on. I went to Jarvis Bay in Australia, I smoked a joint and started asking questions. Why does anyone want to be ruined? What are people really wanting from their interaction with her? Is she a therapist? Does she heal people in some ways? These guys seem to be, you know, so enamored with her, like she's a, a goddess or, or you know, a, a healer. Like people said crazy things about her, you know, in terms of the influence that she had on their life, much beyond getting off, but actually had made them a better person. So just asking all these questions aloud, talking into my iPhone recorder, that was how I started finding, okay, what are the themes I really want to explore? So, you know, it's not just about sitting there writing on your laptop. It's, for me, it's a lot of voice recorder stuff. That's kind of how I do a lot of my uh, processing of ideas. I'm just wondering, were a lot of these men, men that were in charge, and so it kind of felt good to reverse roles, or I'm just assuming that? No, for sure there is that. And it's such a misnomer when you say a submissive male, because you meet these guys and they're high-powered CEOs. Now that's a bit of a cliche. I'm not saying everyone is like a judge or a millionaire or something, but, my take on human sexuality is it's very compartmentalized. If you have one of these fetishes, it's because you probably were exposed to something at a young age and something just got hardwired in your brain. To me, that doesn't have a lot to do with who you are in day-to-day -day life. They can be very separate. And I really found that a lot, you know, and some people are like, oh, these guys seem so normal when you meet them. <laughs> I already had made that cognitive jump. I was like, well, of course, they're just people. They just happen to get off on this thing that you find strange and it's almost a coincidence that they get off on that. You know, it doesn't define who they are. But uh, the film definitely looks at what happens if you bring a fantasy into reality and the dangers of that. Because sometimes it's better to keep your fantasies in a little box. We all want our fantasies to come true. I would say this film explores a little bit. Well, what happens if that fantasy comes into reality? What happens if you live your fantasy? Maybe you should be careful what you wish for. And you went to a lot of conventions with her or? Did. And you got to see like meet and greets. And oh things. yeah, I met all the women doing this line of work. Amazing people, great friends of mine now. Oh, I got really deep. I got really deep into it. I went to the Adult Film Expo a few times in Las Vegas and, and uh, whew, man. I mean, again, talk about blurring the line between fantasy and reality. There's a giant party in the film and we threw a real mansion 
party in Las Vegas with real porn stars and people attending and clients. And it was like we were shooting these scripted scenes in a real party atmosphere. So that was a crazy experience. Um, but again, it kind of reflected in the footage. It's got this gritty, authentic kind of feeling. So I was always trying to tap into that reality where possible, even if it's a scripted storyline, but this kind of bedrock of reality. It's funny, Borat was a great inspiration for me. You know, the Sasha Baron oh, yes. Cohen uh -huh. film. Just the methodology. Again, that's a comedy, completely different tone. But, you know, using reality as the foundation for this fictional storyline, that did it very effectively and that inspired me a lot, yeah. So you originally had the name you, or excuse me, you originally had the name Ruin Me. And then at what point did you find out there was another film with that name? You know, I would think in 2017, we became aware that there was an independent American horror movie called Ruin Me. And I was in denial for a while. I was like, that's okay. There's just going to be two movies called Ruin Me. No problem. We all love the title Ruin Me. Um, but then you get to a point where you're just like, you know, it's not going to work. Because people go to Google Ruin Me and their film comes up instead of yours or people start buying the wrong thing on iTunes once it's available. So, you know, we just spoke to enough distributors and, and some friends who were sales agents or, you know, people in marketing and they were like, you need your own identity. Have your own digital footprint. Don't confuse yourself in the marketplace. So it was tough, but we, we made the change. And now I prefer the title Use Me. I really do because addiction is quite a central theme in the movie. So the word use, using that concept, that kind of makes sense for this movie. Sure. Yeah. And both parties are using one another, you know? Yeah, and who's using who right. and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. Sure. So yeah, look, I mean, um, I, 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 wanna, I haven't seen the horror movie Ruin Me. I heard it's quite good and you know, I wish those guys all the best. It's just a shame. It, I mean, I think it was, just a, it was just a coincidence. It happens sometimes. You both come up with the same title at the same time. They got theirs out first. So we kind of had to say, all right, you have it and we'll change the name. Any tips for filmmakers that have, are saying, okay, I need to change the name and we're already like picture locked or whatever, any tips for them? Boy, it's tough. I mean, we had a four page document. I would just say, figure out the essence of your original title. So we looked at it, okay, ruin me. You'd think that the word ruin is the key aspect of it. So we looked at ruined as a title, but it just wasn't as active. Then we came to realize that actually the me was the word, that command, do something to me, that sense of a transaction. So we got rid of the word ruin and then we thought, well, what else can be done? Okay, use me, yeah. you know, mutually using each other. And, and it kind of begs a question of, yeah, who is using who? So I guess figure out what the essence of your title is and there's usually another way you can express that, yeah. And then how many places did you have to then go? I mean, I'm sure on IMDb you had to go and change it and... Totally. Yeah, it's a bit of a logistical nightmare, but better to do it while you're still in production and the film hasn't been released than later. Hmm. You don't want to change it after you've released it. So my advice is if there's any confusion in the marketplace, better just bite the bullet and, and just change your title. And if it's a good movie, I mean, titles are super important, don't get me wrong, but if it's a good movie, it's still going to be a good movie no matter what you call it. Sure. Yeah. And you updated your uh, Kickstarter backers? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We were transparent about the whole process and, and you know, they were attached to the title Ruse, uh, Ruin Me, but now they, they love the title Use Me. So, That's great. Yeah. And were most of these uh, backers, excuse me, I, I guess maybe you answered this previously, but were they f fans of Sierra or they were just in that 
space, whether they were consumers of that type of material? Or... Actually, 50-50, you know. Um, obviously, she's got a fan base who are going to follow her and support projects that she wants to do creatively. And then people who are into BDSM or femdom. But at least 50% of people who have no interest in that world, maybe they like films that I've done before, maybe they just like thrillers. You know, we, we did manage to tap into an audience who was a little bit more mainstream. And that was great. That was actually what gave us a real shot in the arm and made us think, okay, this film hopefully can, can break out a little bit. You know, we don't want to just preach to the converted. We want to find, you know, a wide audience for this film. So that was encouraging. What do you want from the characters in your movie, whether it's narrative, whether it's documentary, whether it's a blurred line? It's a cliche, but you, you do want an arc. I mean, you want transformation. Um, that's critical. You want to start somewhere and end up somewhere else. Um, that's how you elicit emotion from the audience. Frankly, that's what inspires you as a filmmaker to keep going, you know, that you are telling a story like that, um, that can touch people, because we're all inspired by change and transformation. So that's, that's kind of number one, if I had to boil it down. And meaningful, non-cliched transformation. That's always the goal, you know. Um, because there is the kind of Hollywood screenwriting 101, right, where, you know, there's this character arc and they change because, you know, it's like, how do you find a fresh spin on that? And how do you maybe find a new dilemma that the audience hasn't seen before? How do you find a new challenge? So this film kind of deals with, I guess, technology addiction, if I can say that, and, and some stuff that I haven't seen a lot of films explore. So that was inspiring for us. We kind of felt like we were onto something sort of novel here and that kind of inspired us to push on and, and keep going, yeah. You had an editor, right? Yes. I'm okay. oh, sorry. Who just won Best Editor at the Brooklyn Film oh, Festival Awards. Oh. oh, very nice. Ash Watson, terrific editor, yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. When, when you and Ash got into the edit room together, um, how was it to see the footage and then the rough cut? Did you feel that there was enough of an arc? Well, I kind of did my own rough cut of the film which was not great. <laughs> and you know, I'm not really an editor by trade, so I worked my ass off to make something not very good, and I was very depressed by the first cut. However, it was the proverbial lump of clay that Ash could then shape. Because if I'd just given him 100 hours of footage, the whole thing would have taken a lot longer, and we really only had 10 weeks to cut the movie. So it was important that I at least gave him something to work with, um, and that was, that was kind of our launch pad. And he really, you know, he smoothed out the, the sort of transitions between documentary and narrative. I mean, it's a spectrum, and there's scenes sort of all along the spectrum, you know, with varying degrees of reality. Um, but he made that more seamless. That was really the major contribution he made, and the film wouldn't have worked if he hadn't tirelessly done that. So I'm very grateful to him. Yeah, you know, I've heard that from other filmmakers that that rough cut, it can be really a sad day for them. You know? Let's just be honest. The first draft of the script sucks. The first edit of the film sucks. It's okay. Accept that it sucks and just keep going. I've learned not to get too down. You know, nothing is that great the first time out, unless it's a miracle. It's usually by about draft 10 that it's good. For me, anyway, maybe I'm a bit slow on the uptake, but I've just learned to accept that Making kind of bad stuff is part of the process and being able to persevere and push on is part of your skill set as a filmmaker and not to get super bummed out about it, but just say, okay, this isn't great. The next draft will be better. The next one will be better. The next one will be worse. And then the next one will be way better, 
right? It's just, it's a process. So I really accept that. Yeah. In finding distribution for Use Me, are there distributors that are squeamish about the, the topic of the content or no, that hasn't been your... Well, you know, so far we are getting some great bites and interest and actually I think sex sells. Hey, that's not a new idea. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there will be, but I think that um, people have to get their heads around what this film is. Yes, it's sexy. Yes, it's controversial. But at the end of the day, it's a really emotional story. And it is kind of a character study. So that's kind of tough to, for people to hold that in their minds. They sort of want to make it, oh, it's just a salacious, sexy movie and kind of disregard it. Um, but so far, the critical reviews have been really, really helpful for us. And not in an ego sense at all. But when you don't have stars, critical reviews are like your biggest asset. And we've been blessed with really positive reviews so far. And that's helping us shape the conversation and say, actually, there's a movie here for a mainstream audience. Don't be fooled just by the sexy veneer of it. You know, there's a real story here. There's real emotion and real character-based storytelling. So that's really helping us define what it is for distributors. But mostly they like the sex. Mostly they think it's a good thing. Yeah. So I'll just ask the question that I'm sure is already going to be asked or maybe it hasn't, but the whole exploitation angle and do you feel like that's part of what a documentarian has to be careful of, that you're not sort of exploiting a subject and talk about some of the backlash that could come or maybe it won't come? Well, firstly, people are entitled to have their own opinion. I mean, I'm very sex positive. I'm very much of the view that as long as there's consent and clearly defined boundaries, I'm not gonna judge you for whatever turns you on. I recognize that in Sierra's line of work, there is the potential for people to be exploited. Now, I'm not saying that's what I've seen happen, but some of these extreme fetishes, it gets a little blurry, especially financial domination or blackmail role play. So everything I've seen her do is totally ethical, but I respect that people will have a range of opinions on that. And frankly, that's part of what the film serves up and, and lets the audience make up their own mind about that. So there's that, and then there's just the exploitation aspect of, okay, I'm, so, I'm this director going into this world, am I exploiting the world? Very fair question. You know, I feel confident that this is a collaboration. I mean, Sierra is an executive producer on the film. When you see it, it's clear that we're equally creative counterpoints um, you know, she's been consulted every step of the way. She's watched every cut of the movie. You know, we wrote that into her contract. So we, you know, protected her right to give feedback. I've got final cut because I'm the director and that's not negotiable. However, if you have any problem along the way or if you feel you're being misrepresented, whether it's documentary or fiction, doesn't matter, tell us and we'll listen. So we had a super honest, transparent, you know, partnership from the beginning and, and there really have been no issues that way. Again, communication is everything. The door's open to communicate. So we just, we just kept talking every step of the way. But you know, yeah, this is a film about the male gaze. And it's about how a woman uses the male gaze. That's how she's made a fortune. So it's super interesting, right? Because it's kind of like how she markets herself to men and how she uses men. I, I, it, it's, it's weird. And then there's my perspective on it. It's all, it's all man, what can you say? It's. Uh, it's a lot of blurry lines, isn't it? Well, and the exploitation uh, topic could come up regardless of the subject. I, I just happened to go there just because I know I've heard 
other people say that about similar films, Absolutely. but it could be about a family that's doing nothing out of the ordinary but just living their lives, and are you exploiting them by showing either a loosely based narrative of their lives or whatever? So yeah, just that that exploitation question, you know. Yeah, it's going to come up, and you know, frankly, while I was making the film, the Me Too movement happened, which is obviously a fantastic thing. But people were like, "Are you a little bit nervous making a movie dealing with sexuality in this climate?" and my answer was, if, if, you, if you can't make that now, when can you? I mean, this is, this is the time to talk about all those things and, sure. and flush it all out and have those uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, I think we have approached the subject matter in a tasteful way, in a thoughtful way. I can tell you a lot of thought has been put into it. It's not just my perspective. It's a range of perspectives that have been funneled into this story. So we hope that the film will inspire discussion lively debate conversation in fact that's why i make movies and if it's a little controversial all the better and it seems like we've gotten to a point where we can't talk about anything without offending some group yeah well look my thing with that is you know honestly i've pulled back a bit from twitter um not that i am like spouting off controversial opinions but <laughs> it's it's more just like pick your platform like if i'm going to be sharing my ideas on addiction or male sexuality or you know sex in the internet age or the american dream maybe i should do that in a 90 minute movie where people can like sit in a theater and watch it and they've got time to digest it and ask questions maybe better to explore it there than like a tweet do you know what i mean it's like pick the right platform and if you're going to delve into some controversial topics make sure it's a format with enough time that you can deal with it with nuance i mean frankly i don't really want to tweet about some of the topics in this film. It's not appropriate. I can't get my opinion down to 140 characters or whatever it was. That's why we make movies, because there's more to say. Right. So, you know, pick, pick your platform. Um, it, it's, it's definitely dangerous just airing every thought that comes into your head on Instagram or, or, uh, or Twitter. And, you know, um, this is why people get a little bit bland on social media, especially actors. You know, of course we're going to be image conscious. You don't want to put forward a political opinion or a strong opinion and alienate half your fan base immediately. That's kind of where I'm at. You know, I'm all for tackling the thorniest, craziest issues in my movies, and I want to do that. And people, frankly, want me to do that, and they like that I do that. What's the benefit for me doing that on Instagram or Twitter? I don't see a lot, you know? So my social media is more about sharing professional news, sharing my love, uh, sharing my passions, my hobbies, and it's all me, but I, I do honestly, I shy away from that kind of complexity on social media. I don't really think it's the, the right place for it. What's your advice to directors who are working with non-actors? Find a language that works. So in this film, um, you know, I had some very seasoned actors, Jaslyn Yoda, uh, Joe Reitman, who's, a, who's terrific. He's in uh, uh, Happy, the sci-fi show. He's in The Punisher, the Marvel show. He's done a bunch of movies with Kevin Smith. This guy's been working for 30 years. So I can hand him a script and it's gonna come out natural. I couldn't do that with Sierra. No disrespect to her. She gives the most phenomenal performance in this movie and critics have rightly pointed that out, but she's not a trained actor. So I couldn't direct her in the same way. So you need to spend a lot of time in pre-production figuring out how do you elicit a naturalistic performance. And my advice would be, write your script, know what you want to get out of the scene, but maybe don't show that to them. Maybe tell the, the person, here's what you want out of the scene. 
Here's what you're trying to get from the other character. So make sure you get that from them. You know, maybe you're trying to get them to tell you the truth about something. So the scene doesn't end until you've got them to tell you the truth. So you arm them with that, and then maybe even you feed them some of the lines of dialogue you've written. You might say, well, maybe, maybe you could try it this way. Maybe would this be something you'd say? You know, maybe, so kind of lead them along, but, but don't get them into the, the, you know, it's just, it's a skill set you have to practice of memorizing lines and making them natural. So if you realize someone can't do that, turn it into a game, make it feel like improv, but arm them with some of the dialogue they can use. That's kind of what I did on, on Use Me. And, you know, frankly, I think Sierra's performance speaks for itself. She just hit it out of the ballpark. And uh, she, she is a natural born performer. She really is. And she's had practice of acting because oh, yeah. this is part oh, of Oh, no, no disrespect. She's an actor. I mean, right. she's done 2,000 fetish clips. I mean, that's a form of acting. Um, but yeah, she's, she didn't go to drama school. She's not reading pilot scripts and doing pilot season. You know, she's not that kind of actor. <laughs> right. So just find the sweet spot. And um, it's a challenge, but it can be worth it. And, you know, that was the thing. Like, when I kind of discovered her online... I just felt she had an X factor and a charisma and I wanted to show that to the world and I knew I could harness it. So if you found someone and you really feel they have that X factor, even if they're not a classically trained actor or whatever, trust your gut. So far it's worked for me, you know, when I really get that good feeling about someone, okay, they could do this, they're a performer, trust that. Because sometimes you get electrifying work from people who are quote unquote non-actors. I mentioned earlier purpose-driven. And then David interjected off camera, intuitive confidence. And I actually like that better. I think <laughs> I can see that in you too. Where does that come from? Well, it's undeniable. You get a feeling in your stomach and it, you can't sleep. You're so electrified. You, your nervous system is just lit up and you know that you're gonna make a film about this idea you've had. It's happened to me three times in my life and each time it did turn into a film. The first time I saw Peter Durkace, this famous South African political satirist. I saw him at the Sydney Opera House and he was talking about how he'd gone all over South Africa and he'd seen a million school kids educating them about HIV and AIDS. And I just put myself in their shoes, these kids that were my age at the time. And it was just like, I have to tell this story. I have to go to South Africa. I have to make a film about this person. It was undeniable. And that turned into Darling the Peter Durke story. It happened with Cup of Dreams, my second film. And again, with Sierra, I mean, I'm not like exaggerating this or making this into a story for you. When I went on her website, I knew I was gonna make a movie about her. I, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea, but I just got this feeling. And believe me, I've had a lot of ideas along the way that never turned into anything. I've had a lot of scripts that weren't quite good enough to get made. But if you really get that gut feeling, you owe it to yourself to follow it. And, and as time goes on, I'm more and more tuned into that feeling rather than rationalizing it or intellectualizing it. Just like, does this hit me on a gut level? Yeah. And that gives me confidence because I feel it in the pit of my stomach. And then I can convey that to other people and get them to join me on the journey and help me do it. Yeah. What about when people try to talk you out of your experience? Because for people that are, I mean, everybody's intuitive, everyone, but some people sure. have like a higher level, whether it's just from meditation or yoga or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's people that kind of talk you out of your experience and say, oh no, you're just being whatever. Or I don't know if this will work. No, for sure. And look, at the end of the day, it just, it either happens or it doesn't. I mean, you know, you go into it with full confidence and people will either respond or they won't. So maybe I'm a little bit uh, fatalistic isn't the right word. 
but you just keep making the effort, you keep trying. And if it is a good enough idea, it will get made. If it does resonate with people, it will happen. And if it doesn't, then sadly, it just, it won't happen. It'll be too hard. Um, but at the end of the day, it is all on you. When you're the like writer director, you're the one driving it for years. So you need to feel strong enough that you've got that energy, which lasts years to keep pushing it along. And if you look inside and you feel like the energy maybe isn't there, you need to ask yourself, is that a story I really want to tell? For any of your three films, was there ever a point where you almost gave up? Absolutely. My second film, Cup of Dreams, was a total nightmare. Really proud of the film. Um, super personal film. It's about New Zealanders' obsession with rugby. Uh, it's a bit like Canadians and hockey or Brazilians and soccer. It's a national obsession. When the New Zealand rugby team like loses in a World Cup, the economy takes a fall. People go into therapy, oh, right? Oh, wow. It, it is, the, the psyche of the country is connected to how this team does. Luckily, they're a really good team. But um, I was an All Black fan because I grew up in New Zealand, so I loved these guys. But I was too close to it. I actually loved rugby too much. And I started making not a very good film. Right? And it just ran out of steam. The funding dried up and I was depressed. And I was like, okay, I just spent all my savings trying to make this documentary. I'm broke. In fact, I'm in debt. I got no idea what's next. And then my producer, Jonathan Green, he kind of picked me up, but he gave me some tough love. And he kind of said, look, the reason it didn't work out is because you're too close. You love this topic too much. You need some objectivity. And so then he helped me step back, realize, why do I really love rugby? Oh, it's actually these personal reasons and it's about my relationship with my father. And he helped me delve deeper. And that turned it into a film that wasn't about sport. It became a film about people and relationships and home. And it connected with an audience who may have never heard of rugby, but they got it. So I would say, Sometimes you need a little bit of distance from your subject, right? It's good to be passionate, but if, if you are so in love with it that you can't see the woods for the trees, that's not necessarily a good thing. So sometimes you need people around you to give you objectivity and use that because it will help you and it will help you find the story you really want to tell. What did you learn from the writing process for Use Me? Well, I, I think, you know, the first treatment wasn't that great and it was because there was a fundamental problem, which was, we were trying to send the wrong character on an arc, right? I was trying to send the Sierra character on a certain arc and it didn't ring true to reality. So I don't wanna give spoilers away for when people see the film, but sometimes when you're hitting your head against a brick wall when you're writing, it's actually this fundamental problem of having the wrong protagonist, right? The person who you're making change and transform, it's feeling artificial because that's just, it's just not right for the story. So that really changed from the first draft of the script where it was very much about Sierra changing and it just didn't feel authentic. So then I sat down with Sierra and I said, all right, listen, who do you want to be in this movie? Do you want to be Bruce Wayne or do you want to be the Joker? She said, what, what are we talking about? I said, <laughs> well, I'm trying to make this story where you have this big epiphany and you change and stuff like that and it kind of feels phony. Maybe your character doesn't necessarily change fundamentally. Maybe how we perceive your character completely changes, but maybe you're just you. Kind of like the Joker, right? This anarchist who is kind of the same from beginning to end. And she was like, okay, I want to be the Joker. 
And I was like, I bet you do. So once we kind of shifted gears and actually made my character more the protagonist, meaning, you know, the conduit through which the audience experiences this world, everything changed. And the scripts got much better. The whole thing made more sense and it all felt more authentic. So yeah, the first draft just had a fundamental problem. It was like the wrong protagonist. Yeah. And is that, are those notes too that your producer had given you or you came up with that on your own? For sure, no, I mean, it, it sort of became apparent to all of us, Sierra, Jonathan Green, the producer and myself, we just felt this direction isn't working. And it was, just, it was, it was obvious, you know, that something wasn't right. So we were very frank about that. Uh, yeah, and then we kind of went in a new direction and um, it felt a lot more authentic. But I wouldn't have got there if I hadn't written out a conventional screenplay. So even though the film ended up going in unexpected directions, it was that foundation of the screenplay that allowed us to, to move and actually be nimble. Like for instance, we did a real Kickstarter campaign, okay? And someone reached out and said, I'd give you a lot of money if I could see a video of you and Julian making out. They reached out to Sierra. They were like, if I could see a video of you guys making out and teasing me, I'd give you $7,500. Wow, okay. So that inspired a whole new storyline, <laughs> which you'll see when you watch the film. But uh, yeah, you know, we were, uh, we were able to, to be pretty flexible with the story. Also because I was the lead in it. So I had access to myself all the time. I mean, I was still rewriting it in the edit suite. There were video diaries in the film that I actually shot in the edit suite. So the methodology we employed was really only possible because Sierra and I were the leads and we had access to ourselves all the time. So that's really interesting. So if you see that you're writing a character that you really can't implement any kind of arc, maybe that's not the protagonist. Maybe they're not meant to change. Wow, okay, very interesting. Because you always do want a character to go on some kind of transformational arc. That's why we love storytelling. That's the lessons that we get from movies and books. But maybe you've picked the wrong character. Maybe that character isn't meant to change and maybe that's okay. That, that's a piece of advice I wish I could have given myself at the start of the writing process. But you knew that the character of, of Julian could change. Well, it opened up a whole bunch of new possibilities for the journey my character could go on just by shifting the focus a little bit. Wow, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. How long was the screenwriting process? <sighs> I mean, you know, honestly, probably six to 12 months of writing and really exploring the material. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, the film seems to just kind of like naturally unfold, like it's, it all just really happened. But um, right from the first scene, it's actually pretty meticulous how it's all set up. And I hope that's invisible. I hope the audience just feels like it's spontaneous and it's kind of like this documentary that kind of got out of control. But um, no, we really, we plotted it pretty carefully. And it's funny, I've never felt so in control of a process creatively. Even though it feels like total chaos while you're watching it, it was actually the most I've ever felt like I really had a strong grip on it. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of an illusion, the chaos of the movie, a very calculated mm. illusion. So, do you want to be Bruce Wayne? Do you want to be the Joker? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> it depends on the movie. I may be more the Bruce Wayne in this movie. Sierra Lynch is a good joker. I'll let her be the joker. Your intuition is very powerful for you. Your gut check. So you have this intuition about this film, which was ruined me at that time to use me. 
and then you are several months into it, you're trying to write the screenplay, but you're struggling. How was that for you? Because you know yourself so well that you know that you trust what you feel, what you're directed toward. It was terrible. It was terrible. Um, it's just part of the process. You have to go down detours. And how do you get through that? I mean, honestly, you just grit your teeth and keep going and try to believe in that original inspiration that you had. Because when you first get the idea for a movie, it's like super clear. It's like, I don't want to say HD or 4K, I'm going to say 8K clarity. And then you have to turn it into a screenplay, then you have to actually start filming it, and then it gets blurry like, you know, 1980s analog TV. And you're like, where's my 8K clarity? It was so clear when I had the idea. And honestly, that's just the process. You just have to commit to it, accept it's going to suck for a while, and believe that you're going to come back to that original pure idea that got you so excited. I also really believe you have to explore bad ideas to get to the to get to the, to the good one. So you need to reframe it as, okay, you know what? I went down a path that just didn't work creatively. Great. I'm making progress. I can put that aside. That's not what this film's gonna be. Now that I know that, I'm getting closer to the ideas that are gonna work. So <laughs> a lot of it is this kind of crazy sounding positive self-talk, but if I'm being honest, that's, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me going because it's hard. It's hard when it's not working, you know? And pretty much give yourself time Keep pushing and have faith in that original idea. If it was strong enough to make you feel something, you know that there's some nugget of gold and you just, you gotta get to it through perseverance. Well, it reminds me too of how you went to film school after you'd made a, a movie or two. And, and it's, that's so interesting because most people, it's the opposite. Right. And, and then they're either jaded or they love it, but you use it as inspiration. Yeah, and you know, I mean, look, everyone's different, so I don't wanna recommend any, anything to anyone. Oh, sure. But, but for me, I needed to go and make stuff on my own, outside of any system. I needed to, to take risks, fail, succeed on my own, find my own voice. I got to a point where I just couldn't keep doing that and I was burned out. And that was where film school came in. And I really studied, okay, what is Hollywood screenwriting? What is the hero's journey? You know, all these really fundamental things. That was instrumental for me. And I've just made a movie that's kind of edgy and, and breaks the rules somewhat. I could break them because I learned all the rules. You know, I know how to write a, a three-act structure. You know, I did the wonderful Michael Haig course. I've seen him on your show. All that stuff is brilliant. And if you do want to make like avant-garde, edgy movies, learn the fundamentals of, of, you know, what you'd call like studio Hollywood storytelling. Learn those beats inside out. Then you really can uh, break the rules. One other thing I will say, film school is such a luxury. And I went into it with a funny attitude. I went into it like, I want to make my worst stuff here. Now, I don't mean that I set out to do an unprofessional job. I wanted it to be as good as it could be, but I pushed myself. I made stuff that I hadn't tried to make before because there was a safety net. I was at film school. If I made something truly horrendous, I could make it go away and it would never see the light of day. It's not like it's going to be a commercially released film and my reputation's on the line. So film school for me was great. I tried a bunch of different things. I realized there are certain things I kind of suck at and I kind of found my voice through that process. So really, I, <laughs> I, I had a lot of failures at film school and because I kind of got those out of my system in a safe environment, my work got a lot better after I graduated. And I think that's why film school is actually good for people. It's not that they give you some magic secret source. 
You can learn a lot online. You can plug, you can learn a lot from watching Film Courage. Oh. Truly, you can. You could probably learn everything they could teach you. But there's something about that process and failing in a safe environment, figuring out who you are, just giving yourself a year or two to walk on the tightrope knowing there's a safety net there, that can be huge. So that's why I would encourage people to go to film school. Give yourself that luxury to fail with a safety net. It really, it's worked for me. Yeah, I mean, it's great that there's all these online classes and stuff, but there's really something about being around other people even if it's just watching what they're doing. A hundred percent. I mean, it's not just about what they teach you, it's the cohort, you know? And uh, I have collaborated with the directors who are in my class. You know, I've acted a couple times for Casey Anning, who's an incredible Australian director who's really going places. Uh, Stephen McCallum, who, who just made his first feature, 1%, uh, I think it's called Outlaws in America. Uh, they become good friends and, and collaborators. And, you know, they like encouraged me to get back into acting. They were so adamant about it and they cast me as an actor and that really kind of kick-started my acting career again. And then while I've been working on, you know, directing and developing the script, it's like, you know, I went and did uh, San Andreas and got to work with Paul Giamatti. I went and did Portlandia. I've been shooting TV commercials in Portland. So it's kind of like, I really credit film school with leading me back to acting in a funny way. So, yeah. Are you able to describe your process either with writing or being on set? I do a lot of my thinking late at night. I have terrible insomnia. So I'm not going to advocate having this set routine and you know get up and start writing at 7 a.m. and do it till 12 p.m. Um, but just be consistent. Time is the magic ingredient. We were lucky on Use Me that we could sort of employ a documentary methodology and take a bit longer and write and shoot and edit and then kind of see how it was working. And I would advocate doing that. Uh, give yourself time. If you don't have money, give yourself time. It really is the magic ingredient. And with our film, uh, because it was privately financed, we didn't have sort of a distributor or a studio breathing down our necks. We took a bit longer and the film got better. And we even did things like, uh, we did audience testing through a company called Indie, I-N-D-E-E. -E. Oh, interesting. $5,000, brutally honest. You get hundreds of people giving you their feedback on the movie. And it was great. You know, we made some tweaks based on that. Uh, we also were heartened because we got good numbers. We actually got a positive response. So we felt, okay, this is good. But I would say build all those things into your process, build feedback into your process, give your ideas lots of air. Don't, you know, like Gollum, my precious, don't do that, you know, with trusted people, I'm not saying with everyone, but share your ideas, give them oxygen, give yourself time, it will make your film better, I promise. So what were some, just a couple notes from this indie uh, audience testing, that's really interesting. Um, well, well firstly we were encouraged because you know, people loved the interplay of the reality and fiction and they were intrigued by that. But moreover, they just liked the story and they actually kind of stopped caring about how real things were or weren't. They were just invested in the characters. So that was a big win for us. Um, and that's been reflected by a few people, like my executive producer, Mark Lazarus, he thought the whole thing was fiction. He didn't know Sierra Lynch was a real person. He just thought it was a movie. And then he found out, oh, it's kind of like real life. Eh, he didn't care, he just liked the story. So that's kind of what we've been hoping for. We found out a couple of scenes didn't necessarily work. Um, Found out that, you know, my performance in one scene probably wasn't where it should be. So we had to have an honest conversation about that. 
reshot the scene, ended up being really strong. We had the luxury of doing that. Um, so there were a couple little, little beats that we changed. Yeah, based on that feedback. I'm really glad we did it. Gave us a lot of confidence, you know. Um, trying to think what else. You know, it also just kind of made us think, who is the audience for this? Because we thought, oh, well, it's gonna be men and we might have a problem with women, you know, just given the subject matter. No, our female numbers were amazing. I mean, they were as good as the male numbers pretty much across the board. I mean, it definitely skews a little bit older male, but the, the older female numbers were right there with them. So that was super encouraging. So, you know, and, and you do need to think about that. It's not just creative and I'm an artist telling my story. You've always got to think, okay, well, who is going to watch this film in the end? So any information you can get on who the story is appealing to or who the characters are appealing to, that's very useful as a filmmaker. What would you tell to 20-year-old directors just getting started? Or they don't have to be 20, they could be younger. I got it. Um... Start making stuff. You have an iPhone in your pocket. It's perfectly good. Just start practicing your craft. But figure out what really turns you on, you know, and just be yourself. Maybe you do things in an unconventional way. And some people might think that's a weakness, but actually that can become a strength. Like I realized at film school, certain kinds of movies that I love to watch, I wasn't very good at making. You know, just because I love Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't mean I could make a film like him. You know, you can get really enamored with these giants of Hollywood um, and think, well, I got to make something like my hero. And then I kind of realized, well, actually, the weirder things about my sensibility that I used to think were a weakness are my strength. That's what makes me original. That's my voice. And the stronger and more unique your voice is, Actually, the more commercial your work will be, right? Because it's pure and it touches people. So just try and find your voice. And you can do that for no money. You can do that with your iPhone. Just keep making things, keep pushing, and you will get there. You will get there. I find that interesting. So yeah, just because you love certain style, don't try to emulate it because it may not be... Kind of, you know, like we all go through a thing where we fall in love with Hitchcock or whoever or Scorsese, these incredible people, and then you look at what you're making and you can be so dispirited because of course it's not as good as Hitchcock or Scorsese. Um, and realistically, it probably never will be, but that's okay. Don't try and be them, try and be you. And I probably intellectually knew that, but as time has gone on, I really feel that. I feel that in my stomach, that I've just got to be me. And actually my unique, weird, whatever take on things is good enough. And actually it's a lot better than if I'm trying to copy filmmakers that I admire. But that just comes with experience, you know? So looking back on everything now, why are you still working in the film industry? Ooh. I just, I mean, I just love it. I don't know what else to tell you. It's a cliche, but it just, it lights me up. It's, there's nothing that satisfies me more. And you know, I just showed the film in Brooklyn like a couple of days ago and hearing the audience gasp in shock or laugh or, you know, have whatever emotional reaction they had 
it really does make it all worthwhile because you do this because you're trying to connect with others. I mean, that's the word that underscores this all. Weirdly, you go into a very isolated space and you're working on it for a few years and you're in an edit room or you're writing and a lot of moments of being alone and isolated. But it's that communal atmosphere that you're always thinking about and how is this going to play for an audience? And when you get the joy of that happening and it works, it really makes all the ups and downs worthwhile. And that's why I do it, you know, because that's what inspired me when filmmakers gave me that good feeling of joy in my heart. And I hope to be able to keep doing that for the rest of my life. It's the only thing I want to do. Whenever I go into a movie theater and there's no one there, I'm like, I hope at least one person, I don't want to be the only one here. Even if it's just one person and it doesn't have to be a movie theater, it could be somebody watching it on a streaming platform. But you know, if, if you can get across that thing that was in your head to that person, that's cool. It's super hard, but the challenge is part of what makes it worthwhile. So I don't know what to tell you. I just irrationally, totally love it with all my heart, despite how hard it is, maybe because of how hard it is. And I think I'll keep doing it till the day I die. What are the stories you want to tell and be involved in? Well, you know, honestly, I just want to entertain people. I just want people to walk out of films that I'm acting in or directing, feeling like they're walking on air. Maybe I've taken them to a really dark place, but that they feel more alive by the end of it. Um, so actually, you know, I just want to give people joy. I think that's really what it's all about for me. Um, and if you can inspire, you know, discussion about tough issues or controversial issues or, or maybe issues that are quite unresolved in society, that's great. But number one, entertain people, you know? And even if that's all you do, that's enough. That's really enough. To give people joy is, is a pretty amazing thing. So I want to be a part of productions that do that. Did you see The Room? I did see The Room. I saw The Room in Portland with Tommy Wiseau. Oh, you did? And you know what? How fun. It's kind of a masterpiece. Uh huh. I mean, okay, is it a zero star movie or a five star movie? Well, you could argue that it's a five star movie. I mean, because of the audience engagement and the joy. If that's your pure metric, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. And people throwing right <laughs> at the screen and, and the Imitating, laughter. Yeah. Right, I mean, you know. And again, like I said, professional wrestling. People think that's very uncool, um, but it brings tears to my eyes. It gives me joy. That's awesome, you know? That's, that's you feel alive when you, when you got that smile on your face. Yeah. That's really cool. He was in the audience? He came and did a Q&A. It was so cool. It was really great. Why do you ask about that? I was just thinking of the one scene in, in the, um, the one with James Franco where it, it, just you see him pull up in a limo, you know, and it's, it's just that, that night of like the first screening for all filmmakers. Yeah. And there's so many emotions, but it's like this stamp of, okay, I did it. Right. And now people are coming to see it. And sometimes it's a bigger deal than it really is. And sometimes it's the opposite. Totally. But you don't know that going into it. Totally. And so that scene, and then he drives around again, you know, and it's, and it's funny. And especially if you've ever had your first screening and you just kind of know how, like, it's such a huge deal, mm. but then I was it might. anxious as hell. I mean, right. you can't not be, right? Right. So yeah, I don't know why. I just, that popped into my head when you were talking and I just mm. pictured Tommy Wiseau, the yeah. real Tommy Wiseau in the limo. Uh, or no, sorry, the James Franco version. 
yes, uh, in a yes. limo um, going around. The disaster artist. Yeah. Oh my God, yes, <laughs> yes. The only thing I could really add is like, you never quite know what's going to connect with people. I'm not sure if I even have an answer to say about this, but it's like, you just kind of keep making stuff and it can surprise you what does hit. It might not be the thing that you expect, but if you just keep making stuff, I didn't really have a formed answer. It's just thing I've noticed, you know? Right. Yeah, anyway, you know, I'm not sure what I would say about it. Like you never know how an audience is gonna respond, but you just have to be connected to keeping on telling stories. And then eventually if you do it, there'll be something that sort of seems to land. Right, maybe that's why there's no answers because we never know. I mean, to have this viral video. Right, oh, that totally fell into my lap. And then it's like, okay, wow, that opened all these doors and yeah. Sure, yeah, you just don't know. But if you keep making the effort and putting yourself out there, it's more likely you're gonna find something that will connect, you know? That's really all you can control. Did Tommy do a Q and A? He did. Uh-huh. He did. Anything interesting he said? Oh my god. Well, he was loving the whole thing, and I just realized it's a pretty good business model. I mean, he's selling T-shirts and uh, selling posters, and I was like, this guy's really. This is a profitable movie now. This is a super profitable movie. So he kind of owns it. He was playing a character, right? I mean, sure. he's playing Tommy, mm-hmm. but he's very smart for doing that. Right. And he does it well. Yeah. It was cool. I really enjoyed that. And The Disaster Artist was a really good movie too. I thought it was very funny, but then there's also parts that are very true to anybody who's ever trying to make a film. Completely. Frighteningly true. Yeah.